this podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Welcome back to Gosh Pods from the Gosh Learning Academy, our podcast where we share brilliant educational content showcasing the work of the GLA. This week, we're continuing our Practicing in Paediatrics series where our own Dr. Sarah Cook speaks with Professor Stephen Marks about kidney function. We hope you enjoy this week's episode and I'll hand over to Sarah. My name is Sarah Cook and today we're going to be talking about the functions of the kidney and specifically, is my kidney function normal? So we're joined by the lovely Dr. Stephen Marks um, at Great Ormond Street. He is a consultant paediatric nephrologist here and also the lead for kidney transplantation. Welcome. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me to come today. And um, I'm just going to jump straight into um, the podcast shortly, but could you just tell us a little bit about your role here at Great Ormond Street um, and what your sort of background is? Thank you very much indeed. So I'm an Associate Professor of Paediatric Nephrology at University College London, Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health. I'm one of the Paediatric Nephrology Consultants here at Great Ormond Street Hospital and I lead the kidney transplant programme as well as being Director of our NIHR Great Ormond Street Clinical Research Facility. Fantastic, thank you very much. Um, So could you tell us first of all what what constitutes a normal kidney function and how would you know if it was abnormal? Thanks very much. Um, so the kidneys are an amazing organs at the back that we have that remove the waste and foreign materials at the least cost and useful materials and energy. They regulate our homeostasis both in the body's water electrolyte levels and the acid-base balance. And they do this over a wide range of water, salt and protein dietary intakes and degrees of muscular activity. And they basically allow cells to act on the blood and ultrafiltration of the blood and assist in the body's function. Interestingly, as an adult, if you've ever had a blood test, um, when you get a plasma creatinine measured as part of your UNEs, as we say, the urine electrolytes, then you will automatically be given an estimation of your kidney function. So that's an estimation of your glomerular filtration rate. And we normally say that to have normal kidney function, it's at least 90% or 90 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared. Unfortunately, we don't have that for children. Um, So what you do have is a plasma creatinine level, and then you have to estimate what that kidney function is. And for children, it can be quite difficult. Um, The reason being is that we use plasma creatinine as a biomarker. So creatinine is released from your muscle, and the only place you can get rid of it is through your kidneys. And therefore, one has to think of the individual patient when you look at the plasma creatinine value. So are they a neonate? Are they a premature neonate, for example, up to an infant and an older child? Because remember that the way that we know that a result is abnormal normally is we look for a red 
um, badging next to it or a star to say that it's high. But of course, if you've done a blood test on a child who's got failure to thrive or faltering growth, as we now call it, then one would expect that the muscle mass will be low. So therefore, even if it says it's normal, it may be, and it's at the upper limit of the normal, it may be abnormal for that child. So what we do is um, calculate an estimation of the glomerular filtration rate. And in children, we use the modified Schwartz formula, where we take a constant, which is a K, we multiply it by the height in centimeters, and we divide it by the plasma creatinine in micromoles per liter. Um, and for us, we use a K value around about 36.5, which does most children, but of course, if you're very, very young or you're in the older category, so thinking of a muscular teenager, then again, the estimation isn't as reliable. And sometimes actually waiting till you're 18 years of age and getting a plasma creatinine checked. Because as an adult, no matter where you get a blood test, whether it's in a, your GP surgery, whether it's in a cottage hospital or a major teaching hospital, you will be given a value. The problem is that you then need to... If it's abnormal, for example, you need to repeat it. So the idea is you've got to make sure that the patient is hydrated before they have the blood test. And so we always tell the children and adults to drink beforehand. Obviously, if you're having a fasting blood, that means that you can still take water and hydrate before you actually have the blood test. That's really useful. Thank you. So thinking about the types of children that need to have their renal function checked and um, the types of problems that may cause difficulties there, what kind of um, pathologies would you expect to cause problems with the kidney function and how would you kind of classify those? I think it's important, first of all, when we're thinking of kidney function, is specifically to look at... This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Welcome back to Gosh Pods from the Gosh Learning Academy, our podcast where we share brilliant educational content showcasing the work of the GLA. This week, we're continuing our Practicing in Paediatrics series where our own Dr. Sarah Cook speaks with Professor Stephen Marks about kidney function. We hope you enjoy this week's episode and I'll hand over to Sarah. My name is Sarah Cook and today we're going to be talking about the functions of the kidney and specifically, is my kidney function normal? So we're joined by the lovely Dr. Stephen Marks um, at Great Ormond Street. He is a consultant paediatric nephrologist here and also the lead for kidney transplantation. Welcome. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me to come today. And... Um, I'm just going to jump straight into um, the podcast shortly, but could you just tell us a little bit about your role here at Great Ormond Street um, and what your sort of background is? Thank you very much indeed. So I'm an Associate Professor of Paediatric Nephrology at University College London, Great Ormond Street Institute of Child Health. I'm one of the Paediatric Nephrology Consultants here at Great Ormond Street Hospital and I lead the kidney transplant programme as well as being Director of our NIHR, Great Ormond Street Clinical Research Facility. Fantastic, thank you very much. Um, so could you tell us first of all what what constitutes a normal kidney function and how would you know if it was abnormal? <laughs> 
Thanks very much. Um, so the kidneys are an amazing organs at the back that we have that remove the waste and foreign materials at the least cost and useful materials and energy. They regulate our homeostasis both in the body's water electrolyte levels and the acid-base balance. And they do this over a wide range of water, salt and protein dietary intakes and degrees of muscular activity. And they basically allow cells to act on the blood and ultrafiltration of of the blood and assist in the body's function. Interestingly, as an adult, if you've ever had a blood test, um, when you get a plasma creatinine measured as part of your UNEs, as we say, the urine electrolytes, then you will automatically be given an estimation of your kidney function. So that's an estimation of your glomerular filtration rate. And we normally say that to have normal kidney function, it's at least 90% or 90 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared. Unfortunately, we don't have that for children. Um, so what you do have is a plasma creatinine level, and then you have to estimate what that kidney function is. And for children, it can be quite difficult. Um, the reason being is that we use plasma creatinine as a biomarker. So creatinine is released from your muscle, and the only place you can get rid of it is through your kidneys. And therefore, one has to think of the individual patient when you look at the plasma creatinine value. So are they a neonate? Are they a premature neonate, for example, up to an infant and an older child? Because remember that the way that we know that a result is abnormal normally is we look for a red um, badging next to it or a star to say that it's high. But of course, if you've done a blood test on a child who's got failure to thrive or faltering growth, as we now call it, then one would expect that the muscle mass will be low. So therefore, even if it says it's normal, it may be, and it's at the upper limit of the normal, it may be abnormal for that child. So what we do is um, calculate an estimation of the glomerular filtration rate. And in children, we use the modified Schwartz formula, where we take a constant, which is a K, we multiply it by the height in centimeters, and we divide it by the plasma creatinine in micromoles per liter. Um, and for us, we use a K value around about 36.5, which does most children, but of course, if you're very, very young or you're in the older category, so thinking of a muscular teenager, then again, the estimation isn't as reliable. And sometimes actually waiting till you're 18 years of age and getting a plasma creatinine checked. Because as an adult, no matter where you get a blood test, whether it's in a, your GP surgery, whether it's in a cottage hospital or a major teaching hospital, you will be given a value. The problem is that you then need to... If it's abnormal, for example, you need to repeat it. So the idea is you've got to make sure that the patient is hydrated before they have the blood test. And um, so we always tell the children and adults to drink beforehand. Obviously, if you're having a fasting blood, that means that you can still take water and hydrate before you actually have the blood test. That's really useful. Thank you. So thinking about the types of children that need to have their renal function checked and um, the types of problems that may cause difficulties there, what kind of um, pathologies would you expect 
to cause problems with the kidney function and how would you kind of classify those? I think it's important, first of all, when we're thinking of kidney function, is specifically to look at what is normal for individual different ages. So, for example, if we're talking about a premature neonate um, weighing around a kilogram, you might find that their GFR in totality would be what we would use as the definition of end-stage kidney disease when the kidney function is less than 15% or 15 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared and in fact even by the time you are initially born because of the nephron development the average um, GFR can be around that value 15 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared and we see it increasing during the first month to around about a half of normal and we usually then see a normal kidney function what we term normal above um, 90% by the time um, a child reaches uh, one year of age. Of course, we are in the situation where um, neonates, if, for example, they do have abnormal kidney function and they have chronic kidney disease because the kidneys have not formed properly in utero, we actually do see improvement of the kidney function even later. So um, when we looked at the series at Great Ormond Street, it was after three years of age we saw um, an improvement. So the median was about 3.2 years. So I think it's important to think about um, each individual patient. And then first thing obviously as I said is making sure we identify which patients may for example be dehydrated so if you get an abnormal creatinine from taking a blood test which may be taken during an acute illness which could involve an infection or dehydration it's important that the patient is rehydrated and it is repeated and shown that it is normalized when we talk about abnormal kidneys or abnormal kidney function we would also want to check that the blood pressure was normal and that there was nothing on the urine dipstick so no evidence of proteinuria or hematuria Thinking about specific patients presenting, we might then consider if the kidney function is abnormal and it's not artifactual and has been repeated, that the abnormalities may be as a result of acute kidney injury. So this is um, potentially reversible and a sudden decline in the kidney function. Could it possibly be acute kidney injury on top of chronic kidney disease? So that this is a patient who is now presenting for the first time having abnormal kidney function, but having a secondary added infection or dehydration? Could this just be chronic kidney disease presenting? And lastly, could it be end-stage kidney disease? And that is when we're talking about the kidney function being less than 15% or 15 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared, and normally in older children requiring kidney replacement therapy with dialysis or transplantation. Fantastic. So thinking about the acute side first of all um could you tell us a little bit about causes of acute kidney injury and maybe take us through the differences in in the age range so what would be a a cause of that from the neonatal side and then moving up towards the older child 
So acute kidney injury is defined as a rapid reversible deterioration of the glomerular filtration rate, which is associated with nitrogenous waste product accumulation. And in fact, as you said, when thinking about neonates and some previous studies, so Stapleton et al. showed and published in Pediatric Nephrology that 8% of babies in the neonatal intensive care unit experience um, some form of acute kidney injury. And in neonates themselves, then pre-renal acute kidney injury is the most common type, which happens in nearly three quarters, around 72% of all neonatal cases from the work that was done by Norman et al. So in a newborn, we think about acute kidney injury when the creatinine could be increasing, and that can be um, more than 50 micromoles per litre per day. But remember, one of the things that you would look at is actually the amount of urine that is being produced. And normally, we would say oliguria is when the reduction in urine output is to less than 1 mil per kilogram per hour in neonates or 0.5 mils per kilogram per hour in older children. But acute kidney injury, it's for example, in a neonate with perinatal asphyxia, is actually predominantly not oliguric. So when we consider acute kidney injury, we think of this as being possibly due to pre-renal problems, so before getting to the kidneys, intrinsic kidney disease or renal, or post-renal, so usually obstruction. And when we talk about pre-renal failure, we're talking about decreased true intravascular volume, which can be a result of dehydration, losses such as diarrhea and vomiting from the gastrointestinal tract, salt wasting, diabetes insipidus, and third space losses that can happen with sepsis and nephrotic syndrome. But of course, if there is any degree of cardiac failure and pump failure, and so blood is not going to the kidneys, and that can be cardiac failure with pericarditis or even more severe in tamponade, then of course that could be one of the causes of why you're getting a pre-renal acute kidney injury. With intrinsic renal disease, um, the commonest causes can be acute tubular necrosis, such as in a hypoxic ischemic injury, can be mediated by drugs or toxins. Um, for those of you who've done oncology, um, before we had the advent of respiracase, even with just allopurinol, we saw many children with tumor lysis syndrome, uric acid nephropathy. Um, we see children who have a drug-induced or idiopathic interstitial nephritis, glomerular nephritis, which is an immune-mediated kidney disease. We can see vascular lesions, which can be from neonates with renal arterial, but more commonly perinatal renal venous thrombosis. We can also see in older children drug-induced hemolytic uremic syndrome being one of the causes or infection with sepsis and pyelonephritis. Post-renal, we generally consider obstructive uropathy, and for that we would consider obstruction in a solitary kidney. It could also be because of bilateral ureteric obstruction, and for example, from um, nephrolithiasis or renocarculi in both ureters, or in fact, urethral obstruction more distally. And considering neonates and specifically, we would consider, as I said, any hypoxia or anoxic injury, hypovolemia, hypertension, cardiac failure as being pre-renal. Organ failure may be actually the development of the kidneys, so hyperplasia or dysplasia with vascular disorders, 
acute tubular necrosis, nephrotoxic agents that we use, for example, giving gentamicin to neonates who are more susceptible, an infection in abnormal kidneys, for example, pyelonephritis, and post-renal failure with a urethral obstruction or diverticulum, a uterus seal, or neurogenic bladder. Brilliant. I think that's a really useful classification there to, to go to when you're in need. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the complications of acute kidney injury? Um, what can happen after that occurs um, and how we may address those issues? Thank you. Yes. Well, the first thing to say is, um, especially with neonates, but knowledge is of acute kidney injury is the consideration of fluid, electrolyte and acid base imbalance. So it'd be quite common for us to get telephone calls from neonatal units, from general paediatrics, advising us on how do you manage fluid overload, um, electrolyte abnormalities such as hyponatremia, um, so low sodium, can be high sodium as well, hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia and acidosis. But remember that for any cause of acute kidney injury, there may be um, convulsions which can happen, which can be due to um, seizure activity because of high blood pressure, so um, what we call press, so posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome um, but it can be due to electrolyte abnormalities as well as hypocalcemia um, hypoglycemia we can also be in the situation of an overwhelming sepsis in a child so that can be quite difficult with low blood pressure and especially in neonates one of the issues may be due to renal vascular thrombosis um, and actually the management of that as well as overall how to how to um, manage abnormal um, blood pressure especially malignant hypertension in the face of acute kidney injury. Fantastic. So moving away from acute kidney injury, um, could we talk a little bit about the um, presentation of chronic kidney disease and how that might be different to the presentation of acute kidney injury? Yes, it can be quite difficult to discern when a patient just arrives in an accident emergency and you get the first blood test or a primary care taking a blood test because a child's not been feeling um, quite um, their normal self. So one of the things to do is to go back to the history and find out a little bit about the child. Remember, when we use the term terminology chronic kidney disease, we normally like to see the fact that the child has had abnormal kidney function for three months. But if you have a patient who presents with a plasma creatinine of 1,000 and they've got very small kidneys on ultrasound, then it is obvious that it's going to be chronic kidney disease. However, as I stated earlier, it could be a presentation of acute kidney injury on top of the chronic kidney disease, which is precipitated by infection or dehydration. Some of the aspects we might consider is going back and finding out a little bit more about the child, their neonatal history, do they have normal antenatal ultrasounds, and in fact are third trimester ultrasound which is only done in some units is very reassuring if it was if it was normal and um, that the child had normal development of the kidneys whereas a 20 week scan may actually miss significant uh, kidney disease because what they're looking for is a bladder and two kidneys Going to the history is if there is any intercurrent infection or if there has been any long-standing um, idea that the child has got chronic kidney disease. So anorexia, lethargy, if they've become um, 
more evidence of polyuria together with polydipsia. So a child who ends up drinking six litres as an adolescent a day, that may be an indication that they've got chronic kidney disease as opposed to being an habitual drinker with psychogenic polydipsia. But actually where the amount of fluid they drink increases, they're getting up at night to go to the toilet and they're rushing back to bed and filling up by drinking with a, uh, more water with a bottle by their bedside. Looking to see where the child is doing with their growth. So if they're not growing normally, um, so all of a sudden are decrease in their height velocity, obviously taking into consideration their anthropometric measurements, their weights, their height, zero weights and heights, and also plotting for the midparental height. Any um, evidence of high blood pressure or proteinuria may be more likely um, as a presentation of chronic kidney disease, but you can have it also in acute kidney injury. And any bony abnormalities for renal osteodystrophy, so any evidence of renal rickets would be something to suggest. We would obviously suspect chronic kidney disease if the creatinine was um, very high. And as I said, we'd calculate the estimated glomerular filtration rate as above. We would look to see other ongoing evidence of hematological and biochemical abnormalities. So an anemia of renal disease. So not just iron deficiency anemia, but normal cytic, normal chromic anemia. Very high potassium levels with very high creatinine levels. Um, the urea level may be an indication, but of course you can have that elevated in acute kidney injury. But more significant high calcemia, so a low calcium with a elevated phosphate hyperphosphatemia with secondary hyperparathyroidism, so an increased PTH is much more likely to suggest chronic kidney disease. But if we do an ultrasound and you see that there's abnormalities and renal defects on the scans, if there's been a past medical history or neonatal history um, of abnormalities um, or being in intensive care, for example, may increase the incidence. Looking to see if there's any family history of chronic kidney disease, end-stage kidney disease, requiring dialysis and hypertension. Noting that for many families, they would expect um, there to be, when you ask the specific question, is anybody in the family got kidney disease? They may say no, but somebody's been transplanted because the view is that once you've been transplanted, you've got normal kidney function. Whereas, of course, there is an underlying disease which has resulted in the end-stage kidney disease. We can suspect chronic kidney disease if there is persistent proteinuria or after an episode of acute kidney injury if it doesn't resolve. Brilliant. So thinking a little bit more about the causes of chronic kidney disease, what's the most common cause that you've come across and what are the other more slightly rarer types? So there is a lot of work done by the registries in the United Kingdom. We have the UK Renal Registry where we collect data on all children um, requiring dialysis and transplantation. And the most common cause that we see in children are a group of conditions which are called the congenital anomalies of the kidney and urinary tract. So this is CACUT. And more commonly within that group, we will see children with dysplasia, so renal dysplasia, where the kidneys haven't formed, which may or may not be associated with vesicoureteric reflux, um, together with um, children who have obstructive uropathy, um, and that 
within that group, we would consider um, posterior urethral valves as being common um, cause, which of course happens in boys. And because of that, you tend to find there's more boys than girls that have um, end-stage kidney disease due to congenital anomalies of the kidney and urinary tract because of that number. And that totality of CACUT is about a half of uh, the UK population. Um, you have um, about a third, 36% of dysplasia with or without reflux, in addition, obstructive uropathy in about one in six. We then see a group of around um, 15% who have glomerular diseases, and the most common that we would see in the UK in children would um, be children who have steroid-resistant nephrotic syndrome, and that is due to focal and segmental glomerulosclerosis. So again, uh, nephrotic syndrome, which is not responding to treatment. And then the rest are a smaller bag. Um, so usually conditions such as congenital nephrotic syndrome, um, metabolic conditions that we look after, such as primary hyperoxyuria. Um, we'll also see some children with methylmalonic acidemia. Um, smaller groups with other genetic causes that may be listed separately, so um, autosomal recessive polycystic kidney disease. Those with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease normally require transplantation in adults, although we have done that at Great Ormond Street in children before. And then after malignancy, such as Wilms tumour, um, tubular interstitial diseases as well, and um, significant nephrotoxicity. Within the groups, though, we obviously have to consider genetic causes as being quite high up and although there may be specific features such as Bardi-Beadle syndrome or branchiotorenal syndrome there's a very small population of um, children who don't have other syndromic characteristics unless you specifically have ophthalmology look for them and in fact even in younger children it takes a while before they become manifest. So thinking about the process of diagnosing the dysplastic conditions. Obviously, one of the main investigations will be the kidney ultrasound. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what you can tell from that investigation and how that might lead you to a, a suspected diagnosis? Yes, um, it's always very interesting um, having discussions uh, with district general hospitals on a Friday evening where we're saying, can you do an ultrasound? And they say, well, nobody can actually do ultrasounds in children. But actually, many of the questions are actually very, very, very simple. So if you've got somebody who presents with abnormal kidney function and they've got small kidneys on ultrasound and in fact maybe you can't see one and there's only one small kidney you can see then it's much more likely they've got congenital anomalies of the kidney and urinary tract and that's associated with um, renal dysplasia with or without um, physico-uretic reflux but it's really good to be able to see the kidneys and to see if there is parenchyma so meat of the kidney which is actually going to be giving any function or not so if these small kidneys are seen on ultrasound, remember that if you've had an ongoing process, which may even be an immune-mediated glomerulonephritis, which has been going on for a while, then any causes of chronic kidney disease eventually may result in small kidneys and ultrasound. Obviously, if one kidney is smaller than the other, you may have had a vascular insult, which may be either venous or arterial. If you are in a situation where you see cysts, 
in the kidneys and that can be very helpful to isolate dysplasia and um, we might see either autosomal recessive or dominant polycystic kidney disease there may be other features to suggest uh, tuberous sclerosis or for example glomerulocystic disease if the kidneys are normal size it doesn't exclude a glomerulonephritis or a familial nephropathy um, you can have normal size or slightly increased size kidneys with uh, nephrotic syndrome nephronopthesis and tubulopathies if there's evidence of obstruction, so you may see hydronephrosis, then again, that might be a presentation of dysplasia with posterior urethral valves or a vesical ureteric junction or a pelvic junction obstruction or a neuropathic bladder. And then, of course, if you physically see evidence of renal calculi, then that might be helpful for recurrent urinary tract infections, um, primary hyperoxuria, um, calcium and purine disorders, or cystinuria. So thinking about the cutoff values for chronic kidney disease, um, could you tell us a little bit about how those are classified and at what point you'd be concerned enough to contact a specialist um, and at what points you would consider dialysis? So one of the first things to do is to estimate what the glomerular filtration rate is. And we divide chronic kidney disease into um, five stages. Stage one is where the estimated glomerular filtration rate is more than 90 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared. So even though we say chronic kidney disease, you'll notice this is normal kidney function. And that means that you've got renal parenchymal disease or an underlying condition, which means that you're at risk of developing chronic kidney disease. So where, for example, about a third of adults will have chronic kidney disease because of, of diabetes mellitus, which may be type 1 insulin-dependent diabetes mellitus or type 2, um, or hypertension, which again is another third of adult chronic kidney disease, with the remaining third being glomerular causes. It basically means these are patients who are at risk of developing chronic kidney disease. So it's important to measure the blood pressure, check the urine dipstick, um, and to check the kidney function every year. When we have irreversible kidney failure with chronic kidney disease of stage 2, we're talking the estimated glomerular filtration rate is between 60 and 89 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared. And usually patients will not have symptoms, but they may develop biochemical abnormalities at the lower end of that GFR. So it's not until we get to stage 3 um, chronic kidney disease with a GFR between 30 and 59 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared that we will have biochemical abnormalities. There may be poor growth, reduced appetite at that point. Um, grade 4 um, chronic kidney disease with estimated glomerular filtration rate between 15 and 29 is when the symptoms become more severe. And we don't normally consider kidney replacement therapy with dialysis and transplantation until we get to a stage 5 chronic kidney disease when the estimated glomerular filtration rate is less than 15 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared. Having said that, though, we must remember that um, infants very often can have uh, GFRs in the single digits, but as long as you're able to make them grow, they don't have acidosis, which is not amenable to treatment, and their electrolytes are normal with blood pressure and their fluid status being easily to control medically, we can actually try and eke out as much of their kidney function as they have before requiring dialysis and transplantation. 
We find, however, that even though we use that gradation of chronic kidney disease with stage 5 being less than 15 mils per minute per 1.73 meters squared, we're able to eke out as much kidney function as we can in infants, for example, who may have GFRs in single digits. So as long as we're able to manage their blood pressure, their fluid and electrolyte status, their acidosis, um, with dietetic and medical input, we may not have to act with dialysis and transplantation until months and years have passed. Brilliant, thank you. I think that's a really good summary of kidney function and how it relates to different types of management. I think we've made a good discussion of how the kidney function can be classified in both acute and and chronic kidney disease um, and how that might lead on to further management and investigation. If there is any specific resources that um, you would advise trainees to have a look at to get more understanding of what we've talked about today, um, could you just tell us a little bit about those websites? I would first of all recommend um, the Think Kidneys um, campaign as part of the NHS and that's available at www.thinkkidneys.nhs.uk oblique stroke AKI for acute kidney injury so that's www.thinkkidneys.nhs.uk information is available um, with the InfoKids website which looks at information um, for children's kidney conditions and that is available at www.infokid.org.uk There are individual sections on acute kidney injury as well as an introduction to chronic kidney disease and stages 3B to 5 chronic kidney disease as well as further information on treatment and that's available at www.infokid.org.uk oblique stroke conditions. That's all we have time for on this podcast um, today Um, but we really hope to see you again in the next one and thank you so much for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gosh Pods. If you want to listen to more brilliant educational podcasts from the team at the GLA, please search Gosh Learning Academy wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about the work of the GLA by heading to the Gosh website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and searching Learning Academy. We're also on social media. You'll find the links to our Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn in the episode description. We hope you enjoyed this episode and you join us again soon for another instalment of Gosh Pods. Mm-hmm.